Dr. Fukuyama, thank you so much for taking the time today to speak with us here at the American Academy. I was wondering if you could explain to us how we've arrived at this moment of logjam and polarization within the United States. Uh, I think that it's the intersection of two things. So one has to do with changes in American society. One of the things that's been going on is just a polarization among the American people. The United States is a really complex, diverse society. Uh, and it's been moving apart. People are sorting themselves in terms of where they live, which is one of the reasons that Congress is as polarized. You know, you have these fairly homogeneous districts, which has also been abetted by a fair amount of gerrymandering by the two parties where the districts are carved out so that they're, they, they return the same uh, you know, member of Congress uh, pretty uh, reliably. Another thing is the growing um, power of very well-organized and very well-resourced interest groups. Uh, so that's on the social side. It used to be that Congress, the two parties overlap very substantially, and today they're completely separated so that the most uh, liberal Republican is now more conservative than the most conservative Democrat. And that's a new phenomenon in American politics. Then the second thing is that this is colliding with the institutional system. In the United States, we have this system of um, checks and balances that Americans, I think, are rightly proud of. It's meant to limit excessively strong centralized government. But when you combine that with polarization plus the rise of big interest groups, uh, you get something that I have labeled vetocracy, meaning rule by veto, where it's very easy uh, for groups uh, representing a minority of public opinion to stop things that they don't like. And it's very hard to generate uh, majorities that can actually act in the public interest. So for example, Congress has not passed a budget under its regular order for you know years now. Uh, and in fact, the only reason we have a budget this year is because John Boehner, the Speaker of the House, uh, knew that the only way he could get a budget through was by doing it and then resigning uh, because he would never be reelected as, as the Republican uh, leader. Uh, I don't think this is a partisan comment, but most of the change in terms of polarization has come on the Republican side because it's moved in this extremely conservative direction over the last few years for reasons that uh, I think to me are still not entirely you know, clear with the rise of the Tea Party uh, and so forth. But there's been something of a move also on the, on, the, on the left with the rise of Bernie Sanders. So I think that's the basic backdrop to the polarization and the gridlock that exists in Washington today. Sticking on this theme, could we discuss briefly the rise of candidates such as Donald Trump on that right side of the spectrum? Mm -hmm. Well, you've always had this populist uh, streak in American politics. It really goes back to Andrew Jackson, who was the first, he was elected in 1828. He was a frontiersman without much education, running against John Quincy Adams, who was one of the most well-educated, sophisticated Boston Brahmins in American history. And Americans, you know, distrust elites. Uh, they, they have for a long time. Jackson won that election saying we shouldn't be 
ruled by people you know, that went to Harvard University. Those, those don't represent ordinary Americans. And I think that you know, Trump or Sarah Palin or any of the you know, populist politicians that have arisen in the last decade are a continuation of that, um, that streak in American politics. But it's been exacerbated, I think, by something that's been going on in American society, which is the decline of the old, uh, especially the white working class. Uh, as a result of globalization and technology, um, a lot of these people are much worse off than their parents were, or even their grandparents. They have been losing income. Uh, Deindustrialization has cut away at manufacturing jobs. Uh, crime and drug use have become really big problems in this community. And so many of the ills that were associated uh, earlier with African Americans, you know, in inner cities are now spreading to rural America. Uh, and for this group, uh, you know, they're very upset and angry. And, you know, when Donald Trump says, let's make America great again, you know, for them, America is not great right now uh, compared to their own experience in earlier you know, in, in, in their family's history. And so it, I think it resonates with them. And what would it take to break this cycle? Well, it's hard. Uh, you know, normally the Democratic Party should appeal to workers that are hurt, you know, in this fashion. But they've lost uh, contact with this group, uh, I think, because that party, in a sense, has been it, it's been captured by a form of identity politics. So, you know, the big issues are environmentalism or feminism or gay marriage or, you know, issues of that sort that simply do not resonate with this older working class. And for that reason, you know, the Democrats are not the home for these people. Um, the longer term solution to this problem of a kind of declining lower middle class is something that I don't think anybody really has a good solution to. So the economists will tell you what you need is better education. You need to give them skills so that they can, you know, make the shift into a knowledge economy. And I think that's appropriate. You know, there's a lot of skills that are not adequately being taught to uh, people like this. But I don't think that that's a total solution because not everybody is going to become a computer programmer or, a, you know, a software engineer or, or you know, or whatnot, uh, but it's actually a problem that is broader than the United States. I think you know many other countries are facing this this issue of what kind of useful work is you know in the for people in the lower half of the educational income distribution. You know uh, what kind of useful work is there for them? Speaking of broadening it out beyond the United States, we're here in Berlin, and so I was hoping you could briefly touch on what you believe the greatest impact on liberal Western democracy could be as a result of the refugee crisis. Well, obviously, it's very worrisome that um, <clears throat> the crisis is provoking uh, a reaction both domestically here in Germany, but also internationally. You know, the rise of um, Kaczynski's party in Poland is you know, is tied in some way to the refugee crisis because I think there's a lot of fear in Eastern Europe that, you know, you'll have the similar influx of culturally very different uh, people. And so uh, it's already the case that in Scandinavia and, you know, other parts of Northern Europe, you've got these right-wing populist parties that have arisen in the last few years. Um, so I think, uh, 
you know, that's a danger to democracy because a lot of these people actually fall outside of the democratic consensus that's been developed over the last couple of generations, you know, within the European Union. And how does that change? Is there any sort of outside factor or something that you could foresee that would be able to break that cycle? Well, you can always break the cycle, I think, if you have the right kinds of policies. Um, and that means, you know, really doing, well, okay, let me give you a concrete example. So um, one of the things that people associate with um, immigrants is crime. Uh, and in fact, there is an actual <laughs> empirical correlation between immigrant groups and crime in many countries, uh, not necessarily because foreigners are, ne are always criminals, but you know, there's just reasons why uh, they're not socialized in the same way and you know, being outsiders to the society and being impoverished in, in a lot of cases, you know, that, that happens. And uh, you can either kind of sweep that under the table or you can actually try to control it and be honest about it being a problem and, you know, taking the right policies uh, to relieve, you know, the anxieties that people have about that kind of phenomenon. Um, so, yeah, I think there are a number of things that you can do to really mitigate. Obviously, you know, the process of assimilation itself takes you know, active government policy in terms of education, in terms of, you know, labor market interventions and the like. One final question. Uh, what is one practical change that would make the biggest impact in the United States and perhaps here in Germany, institutionally speaking, in terms of maintaining democracy or at least uh -huh. thwarting the threat of it? Well, <laughs> I actually think German democracy compared to the United States has been working pretty well. Uh, I think that the you know, the constitution of the federal republic since 1949 has actually been a good balance between checks and balances and the need to, you know, have uh, collective action where that's necessary. I think the United States has gone off the rails a little bit because we have too many uh, checks on power that really make that kind of uh, action uh, difficult. And it's interesting because you know, the one criticism that's made in Germany actually is there's too much consensus. You know, you've got this grand coalition where the two big parties basically overlap, you know, uh, and I think you should be grateful for what you have because that's a lot better than the situation in the United States where the two big parties are so polarized that they really can't uh, cooperate on the most basic, you know, sorts of things. Uh, so I would hope actually that the United States would move in a more uh, German direction institutionally. I think there are things we can do to uh, promote, um, uh, you know, better agreement, to remove some of the veto points that exist in our system. Uh, and I think, you know, on a social level, we just need to develop a center, you know, where people are willing to work with each other and compromise, uh, you know, to a greater extent. Um, thank you very much for your time today. We really appreciate you being here. Okay, thank you very much. It's really a great pleasure to be at the American Academy at this point in time. Thank you for listening to our Beyond the Lecture series, a podcast brought to you by the American Academy in Berlin. For more about the American Academy, please visit our website, americanacademy.de. Our producer is Christina Gonzalez in Berlin, and the music for today's show is by our former Ingemar and Otto fellow in music, composer Elliot Sharp. I'm your host, RJ McGill.